0: This conversation was recorded live on stage at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, a weekend of challenging, inspiring and robust discussions with powerful speakers from around the world.
1: Hello everybody, my name's Sarah MacDonald and I'd like to acknowledge that we meet today on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to their elders past and present. Welcome to this session called Cheaters, Sex Addicts and Pickup Artists with Neil Strauss. Now, just a warning, this session is not for you if you're a prude, um, but there's no need to be rude. So, if you have got your phone on, please put it on silent, dim the actual brightness on your screen, and if you want to tweet, the hashtag is Fodi, F-O-D-I. So Neil is going to speak, and I'll ask him a few questions, and we have two microphones down the front if you would like to ask him a question as well. Uh, The session is being recorded, so we really ask you to come to the microphones when you do have those questions, which will be questions. Uh, Now Neil Strauss is a writer for Rolling Stone and several very well best-selling books, but the key ones that will inform his today are The Game and The Rules of the Game, which tell the transformation he made from kind of a stumbling date seeking nerd to style, an infamous pickup artist, which is, he says, now a long way in his past. The sequel is the game and it chronicles more of his adventures as he attempts to challenge the constraints of monogamy, investigate sexual compulsion, and achieve a happy ending that Tom Cruise tried to sell him, but he once thought as a bit of a nuclear family annihilation. So please welcome Neil to the stage
2: awesome thanks for having me here hopefully you don't regret it by the end of the talk uh super sensationalist title it's awesome (laughs) they're like so good at marketing like how can you not want to hear about that and dangerous ideas it's such a great it's this festival has such awesome marketing and I want to talk what I really want to talk about today is I want to talk about the moment that changed my life and uh, I'll never forget it, because I was lying in a pool of my own tears in, in rehab. And I was in rehab not for drugs or alcohol, but I was in rehab for something that, that was a lot more shameful to me. I was in rehab because I had cheated on my girlfriend. And it's weird to come on stage and even talk about that, but I really realized my, I realized in that moment that I thought I was a good person. And how could I be a good person if I lied to and deceive the person who I supposedly love. And when you cheat on someone, you're not just hurting and lying to them, it really is a trauma in their life. And on top of that, sabotaging my own chances for kind of family and happiness uh, just to get some sex that I didn't really enjoy that much anyway. So, so I checked myself into sex, sex addiction rehab. And, and when, while I was there, um, I, I just wanted to figure out what was wrong with me. And so I was speaking in kind of group therapy about my life. And, the moment, and here's the moment that changed my life is when the therapist turned to me and she said, there's a name for the relationship you have with your mom. It's called emotional incest. And, and when she said those words, I think in, in like 20 years of journalism of like writing for the New York Times and Rolling Stone, traveling all over the world, meeting everyone, studying psychology, I had never heard that term before in my life and it made no sense. Like I couldn't figure out what, what do you mean by emotional incest? I was raised in a... In a middle-class family, uh, my parents were still together. They might not have like totally loved each other, but at least they loved my brother and I. And um, <laughs> um, and and uh, and uh, they were never abusive, so I really felt kind of lucky about my childhood. I thought I thought I was the journalist who interviewed other people who had the problems, and I wrote books about crazy people like uh, you know Motley Crue and the Pickup Artist and Marilyn Manson. And I was just a sort of impartial semi-over-involved observer of these things. <laughs> um, so, uh, so uh, And so what happened was, what followed is she proceeded to unpack kind of my childhood and to unpack my life and lay it on the table. And she showed it to me in a way like I had never seen it before. And in that moment, I just sort of burst into tears. Something in me kind of recognized uh, the truth of it was almost like storm clouds parting and, 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 and seeing, the, seeing the sunshine in the sky. And, and I think on some level unless something you know that society sees as kind of bad or something extreme happens, it's hard to see your own childhood for what it was uh, because you don't know any other childhood but your own. And so it seems normal to you. My, my wife was raised in Mexico City and her mom would you know, hit her with belts, she'd throw ashtrays at her, she'd hit her and beat her, and seemed, she's like, it's normal. Everyone does that in Mexico, right? So, so you, don't, you, d- you don't realize what it is until it takes an outside perspective. It's so easy for, for us to see what's wrong with everybody else, but to, it's hard to take a look at ourselves. So I'm going to explain the kind of concept of emotional incest shortly. Uh, but first, I want to give you some context, because in the way that therapist blew my mind, you know, I hope that maybe as I speak, I can do the same thing for like maybe one or two or three of you, and then this talk has kind of been worth it for me. So as I do speak, I want you to think about your life, think about the people in your life, think about your relationships, think about your friends' relationships, and just see if any of this sounds familiar. And as a small digression, I was doing a, been doing a bunch of interviews here for the festival and for everything else, and I was talking to um, uh, a journalist, and it happens almost all the time, when I start talking about our childhoods, Somebody always says, well, you're just blaming your mom or your dad for the problems in your life. But I don't know if anyone kind of thinks, well, you're just blaming your mom or dad. Anyone? Cool. enlightened audience. A few people didn't raise their hand, but you might think that anyway. But what I want to say is this. There's no blame involved. You are 100% responsible for your own behavior. 100% you're responsible. But there's understanding involved. And if you can't look at the variables that went into creating your behavior and your beliefs and your attitudes and the way you see the world... Uh, you know that's a problem. It's funny when after this kind of moment, we always have a moment when we see the truth, and then our mind will sort of go back to its old way of thinking. And uh, I remember I was kind of afraid of monogamy. It was a big fear of mine. And so I went to uh, I went to see one of the geneticists who was kind of at the place and part of one of the main geneticists genetic, geneticists who researched the gen- genetic underpinnings of monogamy. And uh, and this team had discovered that there was um, I'm going to get kind of science on you, but uh, they discovered there was a gene coding for a long receptor for the hormone vasopressin that was a kind of monogamy gene. So kind of I thought I would go to him as i get out of jail free card. He would say, oh, monogamy is so, uh, so, and non-monogamy is genetic, so you don't have to go through all this therapy. <laughs> um, <laughs> but unfortunately, this is what he said. He said, of course, you're born with certain predispositions and certain resiliencies, But he says, I found, and we found, nothing in sort of behaviorally that's completely genetic. Something in the environment, whether we're talking about intelligence, he said, or schizophrenia, something in the environment switches it on. And so the older you get, the harder it is to change, he said, but you get to change things. So so we're going to talk about this, and I guess they put the board all the way on the other side of the table. Hey, Sarah. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, so, so, uh, so I'm going to kind of, kind of map out a little bit of this stuff, and we're going to sort of take a little journey. And so, and I'll draw big for the people in the back, and really poorly. So that's that that that's a parent, clearly. <laughs> that that would be a child, because it's smaller. Uh, so, so, I'm going to kind of give you three different models of parenting. The first two are kind of well-known. The third is the one that I'm really kind of interested in sort of talking about. So, that's, functional parenting is this. A parent takes care of a child's developmental needs, right? And they're different when a, when a child is totally dependent in, in a kind of infancy. And as a, as a child grows up, and I think parents have a lot of t- hard time with this, part of the process of being a teenager is separation right? So it's also allowing a child to healthily separate and individuate. Like, it's so interesting to watch the way parents still try to control a teenager and how that doesn't help the process of self-esteem in growing up. So the point is, if a parent is taken care of and responsive to a child's needs, and it's really hard because a child has a lot of needs, as as a parent knows, um, that creates healthy self-esteem and, and, and relationships. Oh, these, these are our erasers? Cool. <laughs> Alright, so... So, the second kind of parenting we're going to talk about is... And what's that? Neglect or abandonment. Exactly. Neglect or abandonment is this. The parent is off somewhere else, right? And pop, like, popularly in the popular imagination, we see, think of abandonment as a parent who's, who's left and who is not there. But abandonment and neglect is actually just not taking care of a child's needs. So, you can be present, and neglectful of a child's physical needs for uh, safety and, and nurturing and uh, a and, and, and child's needs. You can also be present and emotionally absent. You know, a lot of people, you know, dad or mom are, are workaholics, or they're not around a lot, or they're there, but they're emotionally disconnected. I was talking to, like, a reporter yesterday who was talking about her relationship issues, um, and she was talking about how you know, her dad was really stern, never emotional, and so she sort of consequently always attracted these sort of emotionally unavailable men. So that's abandonment, and what it kind of tends to do, and it tends to sort of create, is, um, is uh, children who, are, who see themselves as flawed or less, less valuable than others or not enough as they are, because, of course, that, that's the belief. If I was enough, why would my parent not be there? It's interesting, as a small tangent... Uh, they did studies and children sort of under a certain age and maybe your first five years, if a parent passes away, it cannot be the parent's fault. If a parent passes away, that can register as abandonment to a child. And there's sort of a form of magical thinking that maybe they did something bad or dad or mom said, said no or, or punished them or yelled at them and then dad or mom are gone. That can be internalized into, and children are so vulnerable and they're thinking, I caused that, I caused that to happen. So about all the stuff we're talking about, Most of the stuff we're talking about is unintentional. Most people try to be the best people or parents they can be. So here's the third one I want to talk about. The third one is this. Anyone know the name of that? Reverse parenting? No, that's that's great. But you know what? I like that. That's a great. great reverse parenting. That is really good. That that is really good. That's exactly what it is. It's totally reverse parenting. This is called uh, enmeshment, also sometimes called engulfment. It's the opposite of abandonment, and it, and it actually is reverse parenting. The child is taking care of the parents' needs, and like if there's sort of a concept that I can sort of that I would love to sort of become. A thing we think about when we think about our child is, and we think about parenting because we talk a lot, of, a lot about abandonment. It's hard to see investment because it's falsely empowering to the child. Sometimes it even feels good, though it's abusive and damaging. And uh, and so so investment is when a parent tries to get their own needs met through the child. And this can take various forms, right? There's the parent who uh, is dependent on a, gets their own needs met through a child's accomplishments, right? They get the ego gratification through the child's grades or through the child's you know, excelling in sports. It can be uh, a parent who's overbearing or over-controlling. Uh, it can be a parent who's, you know, always emotional or always anxious about a child. When someone's overly anxious about a child all the time, the child becomes sort of something, they need the child to sort of obey and be controllable for their emotional safety. That's not about the child's healthy sort of understanding of the world. And there's a specific kind of invention I want to talk about, um, which is... Uh, which is the one, the emotional incest. Um, and, and it's such a shocking term that I, I really hate it, but, but it's, sort of, it's sort of what they used. But what it is is this. It's when a child becomes a surrogate emotional partner to the parent, not physically, but emotionally. So they can be a sur- kind of a surrogate spouse, a surrogate therap- therapist, therapist, a surrogate careta- caretaker, or maybe mom or dad are depressed and, and, uh, and uh, they emotionally use the child to feel better or the child's trying to sort of Cheer up mom. I remember I interviewed Jay Leno, the American talk show host, and he said he just became a comedian because his mom was always depressed and he was always trying so hard to, to cheer her up and make her laugh as a child. And also or, or also divorces. There's nothing wrong. The craziest, the craziest thing that parents get, people get wrong, is when your marriage is no longer working uh, and you really tried everything, it's not, it's not bad for the children to divorce. A child just needs loving parents. What's bad is to put the child children in the middle of the divorce. And I just know so many people where... Uh, and that's investment too, when you're trying to use the child to be right or to hurt the other partner, is, which is investment straight up, to me, abuse. Uh, in my life, the story was this. Mom, my mom hated my dad. She couldn't have conversations with him or anyone else because she didn't trust anyone else. So she'd come into kind of my room and she'd bitch about my father, bitch about their relationship, bitch about their sex life. And she'd say to me, you know, whatever you do, Never grow up to make anyone as miserable as your father made me. Or as your father makes me. And, uh, and that pretty much explains the game right there. <laughs> like the fear of relationships, that pretty much is like all you need to know. And, and, and really, because my message is, there's nothing with most of what you're doing if you're not hurting other people, or, or uh, uh, there's nothing wrong with any choice in life. Anything. Uh, it's how you're doing it and, and why you're doing it that's sort of, that's sort, that's sort of the issue. So... If you grew up feeling sorry for or smothered by a parent or controlled by a parent, this is a sign of enmeshment. And what it does is it, um, it robs a child of their sense of self, and they tend to be cut off from their feelings and be controlling of themselves and of, of others and can be very overwhelmed by, uh, you know, other pe- when other people or people they're in relationships with get, get needy uh, or what they perceive as being neediness, they tend to get very overwhelmed. I'm curious, as, as I'm talking, does anyone feel like they were enmeshed by a parent at all? Yeah. Welcome to the club, guys. <laughs> I'll see you in sex addiction rehab. No, just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so hold on to the hold on to those thoughts because I want to talk about relationships and how they relate to this, and uh, and kind of give you another little little model. There's a saying that if you can tell me what your relationship was with a parent of the sex or sexes you're attracted to, I can tell you what kind of relationships you'll have with them. And this is sort of a general pattern. And uh, for, this is kind of a pattern for dysfunctional relationships, and how they work, and, uh, and if you sort of understand this, if it doesn't relate to your life, you can really help a lot of your, a lot of your friends out and a lot of people out, and it's so important. Uh, and I want to pause and say, kind of the model I'm describing, it comes from different theories of attachment, of de- de- uh, theories of developmental immaturity, of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, and internal family systems. Those are kind of the, the, the little bit of the underpinnings of this, of what we're talking about. So. And uh, and a lot of the terminology comes uh, that I'm about to share. Of the, this idea of the love addict, the love avoidant, comes from an American uh, writer named Pia Melody. So that's sort of the credit. So here, so here, here's the idea of how it works in a relationship. Another stick figure. This is this is the grown-up child. Whoops! I think that should be a mouth. Right? <laughs> he has four eyes. <laughs> that's how you can catch them. <laughs> um, so 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 we'll start with we'll start with. Uh, We'll start with this gentleman or woman, uh, who's the who's the enmeshed person. And if you're enmeshed, generally tends to be what they call love avoidant. So the term we'll use for for this sort of story is is love avoidant. And this uh, this avoidant is very good at seducing. Why are they very good at seducing? Because growing up, they were so tapped in to their that parent their parents' needs that they can just sniff it out on someone else and start sort of. Uh, you know, filling those needs and give them what they're, what they're missing and looking for. So, and also because they're enmeshed, they tend to get their self-worth from taking care of needy people. They love finding somebody to save or rescue or, uh, you know, change. I guess this one has a nose. Okay, so, <laughs> so this, the termino- this one tends to have abandonment uh, and that's what they call the glove addict. And, uh, and of course... The love addict has an amazing ability to sniff out someone who's emotionally unavailable. <laughs> really good at it. And they might even show up like they are emotionally available and, uh, and not be like that way in the relationship. There's a great, there's a, I mean, no, I, there's a line in the, in the truth, of the book that Sarah was just talking about that's, it begins with the, the line, like, if it's love at first sight, run in the other direction. <laughs> and, and, it's, and it's because when you feel that, some, often when you feel that instant chemistry, it's like your childhood wounds are recognizing their childhood wounds. (laughs) Both hoping to be healed by each other. And that, by the way, that's why people talk about, because one of my big fears about relationships was the sex would get old and boring and stop. Um, Some of you may share that fear or be having that experience. And what what I learned is it can always be great, but if you parentalize your partner and start turning them into, you know, the... Dad, you're afraid of leaving you, or the mom, you're, or the mom or dad, you're afraid of controlling you. Um, and parentalize them, well, of course you want to have sex with mom or dad, right? So if, so if I want to give a clue or a hint for healthy sex life and relationships, is just don't play out your mother and father issues with your partner. Easier said than done. Okay. <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs> great. So there's a little dance that occurs when these people meet each other, which is which is the avoidant. Gives and gives and gives, yet it's never enough for the addict, right? So, gives and gives and gives, and it's never enough. And what happens is the neediness coming in this way turns into resentment coming back, right? So, needy feels like they're being controlled, smothered, starts to resent them for their neediness, even though they signed up for the f- deal in the first place. And what happens is they start to wall off. Right? And what happens when you wall off with a partner? They get even more needy, right? And so this is when, and again, not all cheating happens like this, but this is one of the psychological uh, underpinnings of it, and I find it to be really, really common, which is, they need to escape from the relationships. So they start a secret life. They start a secret life, and that secret life might be—it uh, might be an affair. It's often an affair, but it also could be drugs, intensity, working all the time, something that's going to kind of get them high and get them out of the relationship. And uh, in the meantime, the yeah, addict's getting depressed and more needy, but clings to kind of fantasy. It's amazing. I was just home, and I was talking to a friend of mine who I, who I uh, swim with, and she was saying that she just caught her husband after a four-year affair, a four-year affair, and she had no clue, no clue it was happening, but as we went through it, we realized there were like a million signs, but she was in denial and holding on to the fantasy, and often what happens is eventually there's something they can't deny, and it sort of bursts the bubble. And When it bursts the bubble, a few things can either happen. One is they make up, and they start the cycle all over again. (laughs) Second thing is, they break up, and then usually find someone else with a similar unhealthy pattern and do it all over again. Or the third and kind of ideal outcome is they both do individual and work together on their own issues and get to have a healthy relationship together. I really think if you can kind of discuss what's going on in a relationship and if you're both willing to work on it, like anything is, uh, is fixable as long as no one's being emotionally or physically abusive. Um... So, uh, so, and by the way, as a small side note, two, two avoidants can date. I, was, I did, a, uh, tour with, did a, a TV show on, on rock roadies. And I toured with roadies for a while. And th- they are in like, great avoidant relationships. They're on the road for like 10 months a year. When they're home for like two months after a week, they're already tired of each other. So two avoidants can meet and be in sort of a, what they call a parallel relationship. You're together but apart. And two addicts can meet. And also sometimes, depending on your upbringing, you can be sometimes avoided in one relationship and, and an, an addict in the, uh, in the other. And so, so if I kind of have a message, if I, I'm going to go over to this side now. <laughs> so if I, so if I have a message, if I have a message kind of, the message is, is this, which is that people make the mistake of shopping and shopping and shopping for the right relationship, thinking that they'll, they'll eventually find the right person. And the success of the relationship is not about you just trying and trying and trying until you stumble across the right person. It's about you becoming the right person, and in any study on relationships or self-esteem, the people you are looking for and seeking for always match your level of emotional maturity. So if you grow yourself up, you'll attract, you know, be the person you want to date, you'll attract that kind of person. Now, I don't believe that most parents do this on purpose. You know, all people are, all human beings are imperfect, thus so too are are all parents. So we're all raised imperfectly, and we all have our unique sets of baggage, you know, including the kind of ego-protecting baggage and the parent as godlike authority baggage uh, that makes some people here think, well, that's not me. My childhood was perfect. And by the way, as any therapist knows, if somebody's saying their child was was, was perfect and, and incredible and the best childhood, that's like a instant sign that something is going on, because you don't idealize it like that for no reason. That's like the sign that, it's like number one sign of one of the huge signs of trauma. And I want to say these things, <laughs> right? <laughs> because we build walls, to, we, build, we build walls, we build walls to protect ourselves. And, and these things, there's a great quote from, uh, from, from Irving Galam, who, who's, a, who's, a, who's a writer and author, and I think psycho, and psychoanalyst, and he says... You know, children are so resilient. Like, we, whatever, I don't know what you've all survived, but I bet every so many of you here could write incredible books or maybe have written incredible books about what you've been through. And children, we've all survived whatever we survived, and children have an amazing ability to adapt and survive. And the problems become is when they still, the way they learn to adapt in their household, they're still using that in the outside world. So Irving Elam's metaphor is, he says, imagine a city, it's built a wall to protect itself from the outside world. And uh, it's not from the outside world. It's built a wall to protect itself from, from invaders who are trying to destroy the city. So it builds this wall. But then centuries later, the invaders go away. The invaders are gone. It's totally safe. But the wall's still there. And that's our psyche and so much of the friction that we have within ourselves and, and the world come from that wall being up. And I want to say this doesn't just manifest in relationships. It's, uh, it manifests in friendships with toxic people a need to always be right, Uh, a fear of failure, a fear of success, uh, not feeling worthy, not feeling like enough, or feeling like you're better than everyone else and too good for everyone else. Uh, You know, the challenge is that we're too close to ourselves, kind of like, you know, to see ourselves clearly. It's kind of like sometimes trying to see your psyche is like trying to touch your right elbow with your right hand. So so there's a a psychotherapist who's just a genius, a Jungian named James Hollis, and I, I always think about this quote is, what we do not know controls us. And if we can kind of live our lives consciously, we get to have a better life and a better world. And this is like really what I this is sort of there's a message that I can say or share today. It's it's this, which is that growing up, I went to a dentist every six months to make sure my teeth were healthy. That's the message. No. So um so um and and you go to a doctor every year for your checkup to make sure you're healthy. And of course you you know you try to work out to make sure you're in good shape. And you go to school in America for 12, 12 years, or, and, uh, and then try to, and maybe you go to higher, uh, at an institution of higher learning to, to make sure your sort of mind is healthy and for your intellectual life. But in those first decades of life, there wasn't one moment where anyone suggested that finding a professional person or institution to work on my emotional health was just as important as those things. You know, as long as I didn't suffer from extreme depression or anxiety or anything noticeably debilitating then, you know, anything therapeutic or about your emotional health or psychological health didn't seem necessary. So I'm talking today not as a passionate expert, but as, like, a grateful patient who cobbled together sort of my own treatment program from all the amazing resources that are available, uh, and thanks to that, now has an amazing marriage and the most joyful son ever, and beyond that, like, a level of happiness and connection that I didn't think was possible in my life. And so... The message is if we want to have a better world, if we want to have a better world out here, then we need to have a better world in here. And the problem is, as a culture, not only do we not have that, but most people are really hostile to looking within. And especially, like I've just, this has been on my mind a lot lately, we fear just looking at the world and the politicians and the election in, in, in America and in other Hungary, Austria, France, and, and here. Uh, we fear so much the other. We fear the terrorist. We fear the stranger who's going to assault us or murder us or, or, or shoot us. But if you look at the actual facts, the biggest danger to our own lives is ourselves. Uh, this has been in the news a lot lately, but there are eight suicides a day in Australia compared to one murder a day. In America, I think it's uh, 44 murders a day and 105 suicides. So why are we not taking our mental health as seriously as we take crime. And now let's add add in these statistics, and these are for the US, but they're comparable. I'm sure they're comparable here, which is 87 people a day die from accidental drug overdoses. A lot of people die in car crashes, but half of them aren't wearing seatbelts, And who knows how many are texting or distracted driving in some other way. Add in over 1,300 deaths a day due to smoking. In the US, 824 due to obesity and all the other preventable deaths due to strokes, heart attacks, and liver disease from alcoholism, anxiety, abuse of your own body. And, we're, and we are, as a culture and a society, psychologically and compulsively making bad, bad decisions and choices. And I realize this isn't as light as that topic might have been, but, 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 uh, <laughs> but, 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 but there are politicians all over America, Europe, and Australia who are fear-mongering about immigrants and terrorists. And if you're really worried about your future, and if you're really worried about your safety, uh, and you really care about your life, then vote for someone who's running on a platform of reducing prescription pill abuse, reducing alcoholism, distracted driving, smoking, obesity, hospital-acquired infections, suicides, and the things that are actually causing irreparable harm to our entire culture on on a massive scale, not someone who's pointing at another group of people and saying it's their fault. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Neil. So we will have time for questions. Um, I'm going to ask Neil a few, and then you'll have a chance. There's two microphones down the front. So have a think about what you'd like to ask as we have a chat. I have to ask you first of all, yes. what does your mother think about you talking about emotional <laughs> incest and, and lines in the book about, you know, kind of, we fuck so yeah. many women because we hate our mothers. Like, what was her reaction when she <laughs> read it? Uh,
2: it's I think any, anything I've ever said about, I mean, one of the things about having a narcissistic mom is anything that you ever say about them that's, not, that's negative is a big problem.
1: <laughs> so she's so okay with it.
2: She's absolutely not okay with it. Um, no. <laughs> I remember, like, she said to me once earlier, like, yeah, you know, if I knew, known you were, were going to become a writer, I would have been nicer to you. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but, uh, but, on the, but on the, on the real level, she's not talking to me.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. I'm glad you became a writer and not an artist, by the way. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Great stick There tickets. must be some art movement where that would fit in.
1: <laughs> I mean, the, the, what you talk about is is, I think, really interesting. And you've kind of changed the talk a bit to talk about what you're really passionate at the moment about. And now you've had a son, obviously, you're even more passionate about that um, and parenting. But I just want to unpack a little bit, because even um, the kind of growing up that you did, the extended adolescence, I suppose, um, after where you were trying to kind of come to the relationship you're in now, it didn't just operate within this psychological male storm of your own. There was also right. a culture that it operated within, right? A culture you were very much part of. So can you just unpack for us how much do you think it is about parenting facing our own demons and how much do you think the kind of you know sexual compulsion or addiction that you talk about um, was about the culture of easy sex in in the current time and after that pick up the era.
2: Right. I, I think this the whole like easy sex in the current time thing. I think statistically at least in America, there people are losing their virginity at later ages. I think every generation every generation says the same things. You know, too much promiscuity and the kids so you are don't lazy. Think there is anymore. Uh, no, I don't and also I think it's a slippery slope to blame the culture for people's behaviour, because A, it abdicates their personal responsibility for it, uh, for, their, for their own behaviour. Uh, that, that book, it, it's a, it, at least a censorship. That book made me do it. That song made me kill those people. Like, you know. That's like,
1: like saying my mother made me do it. I mean, but, you, know, no, kind but, of, you but, have to come to some <laughs> sort of responsibility. No.
2: no. Nobody makes you do anything. Yeah. This is your, you're looking at your own wiring. So scientists, just science, you're born with a brain, but it doesn't have the architecture. In the first years of your life, all your neural connections are being made. Yeah. Um, the entire architecture is being built. Three, and at an alarming rate, a three-year-old has twice as many neural connections as an adult. And there's a saying that cells that fire together wire together. Right? So, and, and after three, a process called pruning takes place where what isn't used dis- disappears. And this becomes the box we live in. So this is our upbringing. So it's not about blaming. It's about becoming conscious of what's going on with you, so you can then change it. Yes. Because you can say, oh, the world is that way. Oh, I'm just like this. So, I, so for example, in the, you were talking about the game by the, in the community. So, for me, it was, I was just like, this is how guys are wired. They're wired evolutionarily to want to spread their seed, and that's my justification for this behavior, right? This is the way the world is. But if I actually realize, oh, wait, there's a trauma going on. And that sort of, and by the way, I talk to a lot of uh, kind of students and people in the game and people who have written these books afterward, they share almost the exact same parenting dynamic. And I like think a lot of these sort of lit cultures that are obsessive about an idea, whether it's uh, a lot of atheists, for example, if you ask them about uh, dad, dad was an author- authoritarian, godlike presence who was never wrong. And so there was a sort of spiritual abuse that damaged people. It doesn't mean to say that atheism is right or wrong. I'm saying people are a hardcore, hardcore, angry atheists. It tends to be a, tends to be a pattern And same with these guys. A lot of the guys in this community were enmeshed on mom's side, abandoned on dads. But you're responsible for your own behavior. If you can understand it, you can then let go of the lie and say, no, this isn't the way the world is. I was just raised this way, and a false belief was implanted in me that whatever that belief may be, I'm not enough, or or whatever it may be, and now I can let go of this lie and actually live an authentic life.
1: Yeah, but I mean, in in terms of that, this sort of inauthenticity of that, Game that, okay, perhaps you were attracted to that because of the way you were parented and that emotional incest and the like. But, I mean, is this kind of, do you feel a sort of redemption for that now, that you feel that you were part of a culture that was toxic, there's parts of it, the sexist, some could say, misogynist in the commodification of women and the rating and the, and the like, um, do you feel that regrets for that now and is this sort of a redemption? No. <laughs> no,
2: I mean, everything you're saying is accurate, by the way, except for that part. This is part of the process of growing up. It's not like, it's not like there's, you go through the darkness sometimes to find the light. For me, going through that community, I mean, first of all, inherently the, that pickup artist community is problematic, objectifying, 100%. 100%. However, I'm just looking at my own life, and I'm so grateful for it because being in that world showed me just on my, the personal level that, oh, you can change. I really thought of my life. Some people had it and some people didn't have it. And, uh, and I never realized that, oh, you can sort of, you can change. And that's, thanks to that, I have a healthy relationship and an awesome wife and I have a son. And, and, uh, and so on, it it was, it was, I I, I could never regret it because it was part of my life. And I wrote a book that was sort of true to kind of how I felt at that time, just like this book is true. how I feel this time I talked to, uh, you know, I interviewed a lot of artists for Rolling Stone, and we talk about how an album or a book or any art- artistic thing is it's a chapter of your life, and you want to document that chapter before it ends so you can move on to the next chapter. I find, if anyone's kind of a creator in the audience, I tend to find if you take too long to do or finish a project, you'll tend to have new ideas, and that one will never be finished because you'll always just keep revising and revising as you grow. So each, to me, each thing is a, it's a chapter in your life.
1: Mm-hmm. So what about now, though? Do you think... Um I mean, there's, there's an interesting bit in, in your new book where you called The Truth, where you kind of find out about your father's, you know, the back of the cupboard, your father's sexual peccadilloes which are hidden in the back of the cupboard. Yours for your son are all out there in, you know, thousands of right. pages to see when he grows up. So how do you now, as a conscious parent who's gone through all this psychology and you've kind of had to reparent yourself, how are you going to help him kind of grow up to have a sexual... Um, exploration that's healthy and um, kind of, I suppose, respectful and, and loving.
2: I mean, I'm going to do my best job as a parent and then let him make his own life choices, <laughs> you know? There's a great... Thank you. <laughs> there's, a, there's a great metaphor for parenting that I love That's I wish I could remember who told it to me so I could credit them, but they said it's sort of like firing an arrow into the air and you try to just release it as straight as you can and then let go and just hope it flies straight.
1: Yeah, and hope it doesn't come back to pierce you in (laughs) the (laughs) heart. That's a boomerang. Well, we have them in Australia, but, um, you know, I mean, you're always a greatest fear as a parent. You kind of think, well, are they going to be on the couch for this in a few years that I've done wrong? Right, and
2: and you can only hope that they when they are, because nobody's perfect, it's about, because I talk to it, because I really care, I mean, I talk to, how can I raise my, knowing what I know, I really want to do a great job as a father, and they said, you're not going to be perfect. What you can do is be honest to prepare the wounds. And I'll give you an example. I was talking to somebody, and she was saying how her, her grown adult kids came home. And they said, um, and they said Mom, you were, you were never there for us. You were never around. And they were really upset. So she said, well, look here. And she pulled out a photo album. Here we are in Paris. Here we are on a boat. Here we are in Hawaii. Here we are traveling. How can you say I was never there for you? And I looked at her. I was like, you, you blew it. You blew a chance to connect with your child. Because just instead of denying their reality, just listen to it and try and understand them.
1: But I guess that's the, that's the key, isn't it? It's two kids in the same family can have a totally different experience, can't they, and interpret yes. their parenting yes. so differently. Yes. So there I, is I no it, real yes. truth,
2: No, really, there is only no.
1: individuals. Not
2: only is there no real truth, but there's no real memory. I've yeah, spent some time with, it. with some memory. No, your memory's not real. Your memory's plastic. Every time, for real, it's crazy. So you'll get, if I can, you'll get in arguments with maybe uh, someone you're dating about what happened, and you're both sure that something different happened. They've done a lot of... St- st- I was just with researchers who are implanting false memories in people, and every time you access your memory, it becomes plastic and, uh, and, 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 and moldable, and it's so insanely easy for false memories to you know, be created and, and, and seem real. So it's absolutely true. All you have is your truth and your reality that you operate out of, so if you can understand that that's just your truth and your reality and someone else's may be different and accept and embrace that, we can have a And families have, have
1: people who they allow to have the... Right, I'm not allowed to write about my childhood. My family have forbidden me because they say I have a bad memory. So
2: yeah, <laughs> and, 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 how, and I hope you don't listen to and write yeah. your book. Oh,
1: God, of course not. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. So in terms of this, though... But how amazing is that? How
2: amazing is that someone said that, no, you're not allowed to have your own reality? Yeah, but we all have yeah. our
1: own kind of families. As you said, nobody's perfect, but... Um, I guess the thing about being the writer in the family is you have that power that the others don't, mm-hmm. and, it, and, it's, and it's your truth, so you've got to kind of acknowledge that. Just to k- take this... And again, from, I'm it's, come, I, I mean,
2: I'll, I'll say this again, it's not a power. I think, like, again, like, when, I write a book, if I, when I write a book, it's like I just say everything. And, I, and also I've ghostwritten books with kind of celebrities, and, yeah. and a lot of people come up to me and want me to write their book. We're very well known. And if they're scared about what their parents think or what their children will think, I won't write their book. Because no, what's the point in creating a story about your life if you're not really saying what your life is? And I think people will connect. If you say the things that you're most afraid for people to know, the things that you're scared to even tell maybe your partner or your parents, and you put them in a book, other people are going to really relate to it. You know, like the, that saying from Carl Rogers, the personal is the universal.
1: So I'll come, I'll come to questions in just a minute. <laughs> but... Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit can I my, sorry i 've got the flu, so my eyes are a bit failing me, but i 'm just going to come flip it from another side because to go back to the topic a sure. little bit we you know we you, we may not live in an age where people are having more sex, you challenge that, but I think we're coming to an age of a little bit more sexual freedom and and perhaps less of a kind of as you say mm-hmm. in in the first book, you know guys want women to be. Sluts and girls are brought up to want Prince Charming. I think with that, you know, we're kind of women are having more f- sexual freedom. Um, so you tried other sorts of relationships and polyamory and everything and it couldn't work for you, perhaps because you were kind of the power and the linchpin of them. But do you feel there can be authentic and real, loving, different types of relationships in this yeah, era of that are not just yeah, the monarchy? Yeah, of old course. And I think power. with
2: change, people are always doing this. We're just accepting it more as a culture and there's less shame. Around it, but yeah. So when I was, I sort of tried. I thought if monogamy wasn't for me, and I tried to be in a polyamorous relationship, and I tried an open relationship. I tried uh, swinging. I tried to live in a sex commune. (Laughter) um, <laughs> But <laughs> well, I got a great job.
1: Was it a job? It, was it, it a
2: job or was it... It was a job. But the cool thing is you get to, like, just live these experiences and, and write about them. But, but, um, he had
1: popcorn at an orgy. Oh, basically.
2: yeah, I got kicked out of an orgy for eating popcorn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, w- w- this is why I write nonfiction, because real life is crazier and funnier than, like, anything you could, like, ever make up. <laughs> like, unpredictable. So, um, so yeah, no, what I found, here's, here's the answer. Yeah. If you're an unhealthy... If you're, an un- if you're kind of psychologically unhealthy... Any relationship you have will be unhealthy. It doesn't matter what kind it is. And if you're healthy, any relationship you have will be healthy. And all choices are valid, whether it's, you know, celibacy, monogamy, you know, consensual non-monogamy, or, um, or uh, you know, sleeping with different people every night. It's about what's, are you, are you being driven to do it by your, your sort of uh, fears and uh, a way to sort of avoid feelings and avoid connection? Or... I, is it really the thing that's, that's right for you? It's the, it's the how and why, it's not the what.
1: Mm-hmm. So, if you've got a question, please move to the microphones uh, because this is being recorded. Make it a question for Neil, um, and you can of course bring observations in. But yeah, if there's a lot of people, then we'll need to keep them relatively uh, short. But in this in this kind of era where we've got Tinder and um, and that kind of thing, is things like the the game is that now extinct? Because perhaps this is a more Open and honest era. Like maybe it's easier now that there doesn't need to be that game, that manipulation, the negging, and the like that you talked about in that,
2: that first book. Do you think? Well, I mean, there doesn't there doesn't need to be any, there doesn't need to be kind of any of that. But I wouldn't say that people. I mean, are people? In my experience and my friends' experience on Tinder, people aren't really more honest on Tinder. They're kind of can be jerkier on Tinder because <laughs> they're, they're not face to
1: face. It can't change human nature, I suppose. Okay, let's go to microphone number one. Yeah. Hi. Hey. Um, I. I've been listening to the way that you talk about your experience and how it's evolved from what your first book was about, which sounds like... I've not personally read the book, but my understanding was is that it was quite um, misogynistic, yes? And also about just achieving really meaningless, empty sex and going forward from that and sort of evolving as a person and growing and, like you said, unpacking all of your baggage. How hard is it now? I like, you are obviously married and you've got a successful family and relationship... How hard was it after you were trying to move away from that person that you were, which obviously projected you into fame and got you quite a lot of publicity, how hard was it for you when you were dating to try to remove yourself from that person and, like, meet somebody who would believe that that's not the way that you were anymore, that you weren't just trying to manipulate them?
2: Got it. Yeah. Okay. I'll I'll sort of unpack that. But, yes. So, first of all, you're always moving away from the person you were because we're changing in every moment. And secondly is it's just a book I wrote. I'm just always being me, right? It's just a book I wrote and I'm being me and I'm on the kind of journey of life. But what's interesting is the way you kind of describe the book, um, which, which uh, and I, I would like, I would recommend, I mean, I, would, I, I think it would be interesting to read. It's, it's a weird, the game is a weird thing because I was just, we were just talking earlier. I'm saying like the book, it's, it's weird. It's not like, it's sort of like became a phenomenon that's, that, that's bigger, way bigger than me. Like I don't even understand, like I'm in conversation about it and I don't even understand it. Anymore because it really isn't a how-to manual. It was sort of my, my, it was my kind of lonely and adolescent obsession with that scene, but it was also a chronicle of that scene and what I thought was good and bad about it. Yeah. It began, and, uh, and I was kind of exploring it in a, in a cultural way, and I didn't write it as a book for men. It was also for women, too. Yeah. And the irony, the irony of it is I really thought that when, And again, this was in my naivete, maybe. But I really thought, like, when we read and see all these guys trying so hard to learn how to meet them and how... I, to me, it was a book no. about male insecurity. <laughs> well, you've got, you got to read it. Don't read the press about it. Actually read it. So, yeah, no, no, no I'm, yeah.
1: I'm
3: very open to reading yeah. it myself. So, but
2: but what I'm saying is, the way the book was written, the way I intended it, doesn't mean it's how it comes out. Yes. But the way it was sort of intended was the book about male insecurity yes. and about all these male fears. And I thought it would sort of be... And men who are so afraid of women... And the irony is this book that I thought people would read and be like, oh my God, these poor guys with low self-esteem trying so hard. And it, began, it begins with a pickup artist who invented a lot of this stuff trying to kill himself. So it doesn't, it's not a positive, it's not like a lot of, you know, in the end it says, it's sort of. It's all based on the myth of Parsifal. The stories that I chose, and the way I structured it was based on the myth of Parsifal about choosing. Do you choose... You know the ways of the knightly code of conduct, or the rules, or do you choose and go with your heart? So, to me, I wrote—I wrote, I wrote it as a different book than what is described in the culture. If that makes any sense. There is sense. an
1: element of revenge, though, isn't there? It's kind of like these guys didn't have girlfriends, and I don't re- think
2: it's—I don't think there's no. I mean, again, I there, there, see, there's, you there's, some, feel there's nobody you read it. in the game. There's yeah. no There's a couple like in the book itself. I'm not saying the community. There's a couple like hateful guys, but I really think it's—it's a—it's a. Uh, it's, uh, there's a there's definitely a lack of there's a lack of empathy or understanding yeah, yeah. totally yeah but uh, but the answer is i i don't define myself by the books i wrote i, I just go on living my life and connecting and talking to people and someone who has healthy secure esteem and meets you kind of understands that see, see takes you for face value not what they read in a newspaper thanks
1: okay let's go to microphone number 2 over here Hi. yeah very very much related to that so you you mentioned the word responsibility and, and you have a a, a deeper sense of like um, understanding how you uh, have progressed and, and you acknowledge that you wrote that book at a really particular period of your life and a particular period of consciousness and awareness and understanding. But now, how do you, given the impact and the, perhaps the misinterpretation and use yeah. of that book, how do you be responsible for the impact of that book? It's being used as a how-to manual how do you, as the originator and creator of that, create some context for that book? You know, so do you, you know? Is yeah, it, like that, that's what I was asking about. If it's a yeah, I, don't, yeah, like I don't Do you, think, I mean do you, you know? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think.
2: I, I, I guess, I guess, I guess my answer is, how do you think the people who wrote the Bible feel responsible for all the death and blood? You know what you like? <laughs> 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 well, <laughs> it's
1: can, just. I'm not, I'm not talking to the author of the Bible right now. I guess I'm asking you as the author of this book what you feel like yeah, I feel, about I feel the impact you, you, of the book and the interpretation of the book. You, you write
2: yeah. your truth with the intentions you have when you write it and you release it and you, and you let go of it. And, and, uh, and also, I mean, from my ex- this is just my experience and I'm, that when I meet people who said they read the game, like the, on the way here I met a guy in the airport and this happens all the time. They're like, I'm married and have kids because of this book. A lot of people I meet have had like amazing transformations in their life because of the book, and I look at my, my kind of emails when I kind of read them all the time for, for a few years, and this, we're talking about tens and tens of thousands of emails. I never got one, one, I actually got just one, so I take that back, one <laughs> negative or hateful email from anyone who had read, actually read the book, because to me, the book, again, it was a culture that already existed that I was writing about.
1: Would you ever rewrite right. the book? Okay. Never. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I guess that a lot of people maybe didn't email you it, 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 it attracted people who <laughs> so I don't right. mean it like that but it, you know it's a confronting book i think right. for a lot of people to read and the people that did read it that loved it and learned a lot from it were probably people that emailed you that's what i mean like you know we have oh, you yeah, maybe of i don't know yeah, yeah but the, okay. the answer is
2: Let's, like you don't you could have a fr- like yeah, you have got no regrets i you don't, I think you we've don't got know the you, you do everything you do in life you do with Hopefully, the best, intent, best intention that we What again, was the
1: intention of the book, then? Oh,
2: I, what, I, what I told the person earlier. I was just describing right. my experience, my yeah. fascination with the okay. community, and writing a book about the stuff I just said. Yeah, 10, I bet you did ago. not but, be
1: so but, mega. But, Come but wait, again, let's keep going to the oh, question. No, but, no.
2: but the, point is, the point is, we don't know the effect anything yeah. has in the world. You could have a friend and try to get them into rehab, and they could commit suicide. And you don't know what you do. You just try to do what the best you can do, and you, you just try to do the best you can with the best intentions. If you learn and change your mind otherwise, and you, and you try to grow, like you're. They're sort of, uh, it's just interesting. It's interesting. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, but uh, anyway, okay, let's move on. Yeah.
2: <laughs> like.
1: A quick aside. Yeah. Um, how have you managed to reach your age and only met atheists who are atheists for emotional reasons, <laughs> not for intellectual reasons? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, I guess, I guess. Uh,
1: I, have I I, problem, I, I guess I
2: wouldn't say emotions and intellectual are, are, uh, are combined, but clearly you have a different point I of view, that's awesome. I've a great dad, and yeah. I'm an atheist. Uh-huh.
1: Now, uh, I was... I,
2: and uh, by the way, by the way, no, okay. there's enough room in the world for two points of view to both exist, which is great. <laughs>
1: uh, uh, we're expected to love more than one parent. We're expected to love more than one child. Uh, why did your... The whole of your talk, and I'm... And, Uh, uh, hang on the idea that we could really only have one emotional relationship at a time with somebody to whom we are not related by blood. Until the last question from this stage, I had no idea that you had actually tried other um, forms of relationship.
2: Um, So if I implied implied that you can only have one relationship at a time and I can see that's kind of a one thing... Uh, It was really just about your relations, it can be with multiple people, it's, it's, if that was sort of the implicit, that wasn't meant to be the implicit message, so thank you for pointing that out. Yeah, Yeah. thank you though.
1: Okay, over to number two, yes.
3: First of all, Neil, I would like to thank you for writing the book, The Game, awesome book dude. Uh, (laughs) Really, really, awesome book, awesome. Regardless of what all the other people say about the negative all, things... All the other I've, people. I mean, of <laughs> I mean, anyone says, right. Right, regarding the book. Seriously, I've had so much positive transformation reading that book. I read the book, The Rules of the Game. Great book. I mean, I would recommend it to anybody because... <laughs> It's not just about learning being good with women. It's about transformation, about who you are and how you transform yourself to be the best version of yourself. So a a big thank you for you for writing that book. But there's one thing I wanted to ask you is that when you're in a relationship, right, when you're in a positive relationship and and everything is going correct, right, you still seem to be liking other people. Like for me, I I I have a girlfriend and I love her, but... I still like other people. I still like other girls. Like, you know, I mean, I just like them, right? <laughs> do, 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 do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's not that yeah, I'm going to go I, ahead, I, I'm going to have sex I, with yeah. them and all, and, and all that kind of stuff yeah. because as much as I love my girlfriend, I'm not going to love any other girl right, as long I'm as I'm say. with her. But it's just that how do, I, how do I combat this feeling? Sometimes it becomes really hard. <laughs> <hot>. Like... <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I it's love your honesty. it's this is like, dude, I, I still love, love them. I love, okay. I love, I know, I love your
2: honesty. <laughs> I love, I really know. I love. <laughs> yeah.
1: And this is I, I, starting and, and, and the starting point for the truth. Honest, like, yeah. to, you know, yeah. and,
2: and to be honest, like, I, I get, like, I so get every, every By the way, everything everybody says about the game is correct. It's all right because it's just sort of a mirror on which you, you know you project. No, no one is saying anything wrong about it. But what I love for me about sort of that community was like we would have these discussions all the time. It was really like the only place where guys could be vulnerable together and kind of talk about their insecurities. So to me, like, it really was like a weird little kind of college for the social skills, and these discussions all kind of happened after uh, the discussions kind of happened on the stage or in the media. But, but so thank you for asking that honestly vulnerable question. Here's what I think. So the more you repress something, right, it's like pushing back on a spring, right, So eventually it becomes so powerful that you you flip over anything that you repress. So here's... I think it's okay to be in a relationship and have attraction to other people. It's okay, right? But then the question, it's, by the way, anything you do is okay as long as you're sort of honest and um, as long as you're honest about it, right? So um, so the answer is, the, I'll tell you the way I do in my relationship is we're just like 100% honest about everything. If someone feels attraction, we can discuss it. And so it's, it was me sort of working on my enmeshment fears and my fears of being sort of smothered. And my feeling like I had to hide the truth, and her working on her sort of own abandonment fears that together we got to come together. And I could say, or she can say, I'm, I thought, found that, thought per, that person was hot or they're cute, and I cannot feel like that's about me and personally threatening to me. So I think, um, first of all, if you're honest, it, it's on the pretext that you're on the uh, sub, on the... Uh, premise that you're honest in your relationship anyway, that it's okay to have those feelings and it's okay to sort of discuss those feelings in a safe way where no one's threatened. I think a lot of the problems in a relationship are the compartmentalization and the kind of and the kind of secrecy. So I wouldn't feel guilty about it, but I find a way to have sort of that discussion. And to me, what the the line is the compulsion to act on it versus just feeling it. And acting on it can just be a text or flirting with someone on like you know, Twitter or Instagram or whatever. So it's uh, it's, a, if you can honestly open up your life to her and let her, and you're honest and with integrity or else, there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to have that discussion and and own your feelings. I think a denial of any sort of feeling is not healthy. But awesome, thanks for asking that.
3: Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, there's one thing also you mentioned in one of your videos was that when you're in a relationship, what you should do is that your girlfriend you just love her in that moment. I think you mentioned in that book, The Truth. I haven't read the book personally, but you, I think you mentioned so that. You're getting a double
1: you, question in here, so yeah. you comes to the question. Sorry, it's not the, a question. Yeah. I'm
3: just making a statement. Right. Yeah, so it's just basically... <laughs> oh, oh, okay.
2: okay. <laughs> He's <laughs> gaming you, man. Yes, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, so
3: all I'm saying right. is that you basically love the person in that moment. So if you have your girlfriend, you love her so much that you pay attention even to the micro-expression of her face. Uh, well, here, here, I'll tell you what I'll tell you. I'll yeah. tell, you, I'll tell, you what,
2: I'll tell you what I'm saying because I think it's a, yeah. I think it's an interesting point you're, you're raising. You probably should read the truth now that you're in a relationship. But <laughs> um, and, <laughs> and uh, so so uh, yeah, I found like a lot most all problems in relationships either come from the past and the baggage of the past. Or future projections. Like, how can you really be in a relationship with someone if you're always thinking, oh God, can I live with that for the rest of my life? Oh, well, she does that for the rest of my life, or he does that for the rest of my life. How, like, we, we, we think that it's insane. Like, you'll never make a decision if you think about everything that can possibly go wrong. And so I think what helped with me is just like, do I choose to love you now? Yes. Do I choose to love you now? Yes. And if you can really be present with your partner, you get to have a relationship.
1: Yeah. So life is a series cool. of nows. We're going to yes, move on. Yeah. Thank you for your question. Over here.
0: Hi, Neil. Hey. I'm Jude. Nice to meet you. Good to meet you, man. <laughs> um, so uh, there was one point in your talk which particularly stood out for me. Um, it was when you were talking about, uh, about that process of enmeshment between right. a child and, and a parent. And, but in particular, that, um, that you mentioned that the experience for the child could, be, uh, could feel good, that it could actually feel kind of empowering because right. they're here taking care of the needs of this, but that it was falsely empowering. And it was still a form of sort of, 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 of abuse. And that was something that, um, this is sort of something that personally I've, I've worked through myself. But I'm curious because uh, the motives of empowerment and authenticity is something that's, that's driven me throughout my sort of process. And so, yeah, I just was hoping that you might be able to speak a little more on that idea of false empowerment and the danger of that and what that might show up as or, or, or how that shows up later in life and how to recognise it given right. that, that, that generally empowerment I see as being a healthy thing, personal empowerment um, kind of within, within boundaries and, and, yeah, and that authenticity is sort of what feels true for yourself or what feels right for you. Right. So, okay. um, yeah, yeah, cool. I
2: don't, I don't know what. Something about the word empowerment. I never think about empowerment because power always seems like it's a greater than thing. But I'm sure you mean it in, a, in another way, I assume. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but false empowerment is this. It's, the, it's, it's a child with like no <laughs> emotional and life capabilities and life experience who's then taking care of somebody who has as life and experience so it can feel falsely empowering. In fact, there's certain abuse that can feel like neglect but can also feel falsely empowering, like I'm getting that special attention. But that's totally not appropriate for a child to be taking care of a parent. Mm-hmm. And what happens is it robs you of your own childhood.
0: Mm-hmm. How would that be likely to show up later I guess, in life? So I guess like you're open childhood. to it. How did, so,
2: what was the specific way that it, what was your specific
0: So there was, there, was two, there was two particular situations that, right. I, that I experienced, but one was where I remember when I was young seeing my mother crying. Right. And... Um, and in that moment, she seemed very distressed, and she was sitting alone on the grass crying. And I came over and comforted her, and in that moment, that was kind of, at a young age, my sort of going, ah, oh, right. she's not outside of having needs. And how old were you? I think I was maybe six years old. Right. I was six years okay. old.
1: So, yeah, you realise... And yeah, and, I, and I played a
0: role of comforting things. her and then I also walked okay. away because I realised she was kind of doing her own thing. I kind of gave her a hug but then I left her to what she was doing.
1: Okay, we're running out of time so I'll get Neil to comment before we finish.
2: Yeah, <clears throat> so so yeah, so 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 uh, so generally kind of what happens with that of course is first of all parents who leak their emotions by, around children you can look it up it's called, a, it's, called it's called you know carried shame we, 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 we absorb that or somehow think we're so those emotions can uh, create sort of what they call kind of a shame core and I don't know Time to kind of explain it so they can create a uh, um, what they call carried shame. And again, you can look it up because it's not much time to explain. And the second thing is um, that that neediness, when I don't know if it happens to you in a relationship, when you're around people who maybe are emotionally needy, uh, it can sort of uh, both attract and repel you in relationships, if that makes sense. You sort of, I know for, uh, for a lot of people, it almost feels if somebody's needy, it's almost like a their skin starts crawling, they need to sort of get away with that because it's what swallowed up their childhood. And again, if it happens once, you know, maybe it's OK, and we're looking at sort of and if it's a pattern and if it's something that happens often, it's more powerful. But if you remember it and it's an imprint, it definitely affects you. But thanks for sharing that.
0: Yeah, there was a second okay. one, but if you don't have to. We'll talk right, about I it afterwards. I'll, I'll be around yeah.
2: if you want to talk about it afterwards. Yeah. We have
1: to wrap it up, but Neil will be signing books in the foyer. But I
2: love, but I want to say that I and love that you're on this journey and on this exploration and you're asking these questions because that's how you grow and you live a conscious life. So, really, let's yeah. thank really you very much.
1: much for your question.
2: Like, you're, you're a seeker, your you're questions. a seeker, ma'am.
1: Yeah, it's I'm great. sorry if we couldn't get to you today. And thanks so much for your questions. Uh, Neil will be signing books in the foyer. I met a psychiatric nurse at a writers' festival a few weeks ago and she said to me, the biggest thing I would wish for my child is healthy relationships. And I think that that's really true, isn't it? It's a huge um, important factor in our life and let's wish it for all our all the children on the planet, and I'd like to thank Neil Strass. Thanks,
2: guys.
0: Thank you. If you enjoyed that talk, please subscribe to our iTunes channel for our fortnightly podcast.